I am so excited to preach. Have my voice back this week? Oh my goodness. Things we, things we take for granted. We have a bit of a long passage this evening, so I was thinking about some different ways to keep you awake and engaged. And what I thought was, if you look at your bulletin, the name of the message tonight is, it's all-encompassing. And what I'm talking about is what the cross, what Jesus on the cross accomplishes is all-encompassing. It covers the whole world. So what I thought we would do, just bear with me, if you would stand, and we're gonna face the four corners of the, of the earth, and we're gonna say something like, hear ye, people of the north, and then I'll read some, and then you have to, you have to get into character. Though. So now, I know some of you geography people, this isn't perfectly north, south, east, and west, but that's what we're gonna pretend, because north is like kind of that way. So let's look at the back of the sanctuary, and let's say, hear ye people of the north. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. All right, let's uh, look to the front of the sanctuary, which is, we'll call the south. One, two, three. Hear ye, people of the south. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was this also, an inscription above him, saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Hear ye, people of the east. It is now, it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until about the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts 
And all his acquaintances and all the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. To the west we go. Hear ye, people of the west. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and, said, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Lord, we have declared this word out loud to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. It is truly all-encompassing, your gospel. And we pray that it would go out of these walls into the community and into the world and reach hearts. And not least, would it reach deeper into our hearts, capturing our loyalty and our imaginations. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For some of you, that text may sound familiar because I preached that exact passage last week. Um, I had this plan when I was preparing the sermon series to break that passage up into two parts and preach it in two different sections. But as I studied and as I prayed, I just had to keep it all together. And I, at the same time, even though I knew it needed to be together, there was two distinct directions that the Lord was leading me. Last week, I took it in one direction and we saw that the... The story is personal. We focused on the personal direction of Jesus' work on the cross. Prior to this passage, we had seen the whole world conspire to crucify Jesus, even though he was innocent of his charges. To borrow imagery from Psalm 22, Jesus was surrounded by scoffers, raging bulls of Bashan, and ravenous lions. The religious establishment, the political empire, the secular elite, and the oppressed populace all gathered together in support of the death of the God who had come to rescue them. That's irony of ironies. And yet in the midst of these massive world powers coming together around the cross, we see four individuals stand out from among the crowd, stand out from among the masses. In the original Star Wars film from 1977, Darth Vader captures Princess Leia, believing her to have stolen the plans to the Death Star. He brings her before the evil Admiral Tarkin, whose smug threats reek of privilege and overconfidence. Leia defiantly, in one of her best lines, says, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Interesting fun fact, she loses her British accent almost immediately after that scene. But, in a similar way of Leia's statement there, we might be tempted to think that since the whole world is represented in putting Jesus on the cross, that there must not be any possibility of redemption for this people. But that is to look at the forest and to miss the trees. Because in this passage I just read are four minor characters who show themselves to respond faithfully to Jesus even though the large groups they represent do not. Simon of Cyrene, 
an African from Libya living in a Jewish settlement who had traveled to Jerusalem likely for the Passover feast had the honor of carrying Jesus' cross. And it was through him that we saw that we can encounter Jesus when we serve with or even serve those who are weak and in need of service. We meet Jesus in those places. One of the criminals confesses his own sin as he's crucified next to Jesus and he puts his trust in Jesus. This criminal was likely a revolutionary, probably guilty of murder and sedition. And through his witness, we see that Jesus is willing to save people who we might consider, and the world would definitely consider, too far gone. That is the power of Jesus' grace and rescue. The good news is that you are not too far gone. The good news is that the people in your life who you might wonder if they're too far gone are not too far gone. Never underestimate the reach of God's salvation. When we repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us. The Roman soldier, the centurion in charge of Jesus' death, in charge overseeing his humiliation, came to see that Jesus was more than a man. He was the son of God. Even in his death, Jesus is able to reach a man who is an enemy in his life. If Jesus can reach people at his death, imagine what he can do in his resurrection. And finally, we looked at Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish elite and the ruling class. He was so moved by Jesus that he came to care for his body at a great personal cost and personal risk. Got his body from Pilate, put it in his own uh, nice unused tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus' death on the cross has a very real, has very real and very personal implications. He reached individuals and he continues to reach us as individuals in the areas of our deepest needs, mainly our broken and corrupt hearts. Now I am so thankful for that aspect of the cross that I preached a whole sermon on it last week. And that is good news. But personal Salvation is only one part of the gospel. And this passage also points to the fact that there is more broken in the world than just individual humans. And thankfully, it reveals that Jesus' death on the cross atones for the brokenness of the world. It is literally all-encompassing. Now, we're going to focus on five episodes in the text that reveal this all-encompassing scope of Jesus' death on the cross. And the first one is found in verses 27 through 31. In this scene, Jesus is struggling to walk from the place of his conviction, Pilate's court, to Golgotha, Skull Hill. It's only roughly uh, 1,000 feet away. Simon of Cyrene has taken his cross, and as he's struggling down the via, down the way, women are mourning for him. You know, it's one thing to condemn a person to death in theory, on paper, have our policies. It's quite another thing to actually see a real person suffering. And they feel sorry for him. They have human emotions. They're compassionate. But Jesus is aware that more is going on in this scene. And he responds to their words and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves. Weep for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. 
Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus knows in this moment that his death is not just about his death. He's sentenced to death because the world he came to save, don't forget this, rejected him and killed him. Specifically, the nation of Israel, whom he came to particularly as the Messiah, rejected him. The term daughters of Jerusalem is a technical term derived from the Old Testament, and it has kind of had come to mean all of Jerusalem or representative of Israel. It wasn't a, a gender-laden term. Daughters of Israel meant people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. If Israel has rejected the Messiah, who then will rescue her? That's what you should be weeping about. Jesus warns that a time is coming when things would be turned upside down, when uh, to have children, instead of seeing, being seen as a blessing, would be seen as a curse because of the wars to come, because of the chaos that was to follow. He quotes the prophet Hosea, saying that in those days, we will wish, people will wish for the mountains to fall on them. Basically, people will wish for death because life in the situation that's coming would be too horrible. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The nation that rejected Jesus continued to resist Roman occupation. False messiahs, revolutionaries kept on rising up until Rome had had enough. The Romans destroyed the temple and massacred countless Jewish people, men and women and children. And the final resistance, a few years after 70 AD, barricaded their themselves at the top of the fortress, hilltop fortress Masada, it was a situation so terrible that historians say that some people ate their own children. All in all, over 900 people, families, singles, elderly, children, jumped to their death off of the top of Masada's cliffside rather than be taken by the Romans. This episode with the mourning women and Jesus' response tells us two important things. First, while individuals commit sins that, lead, uh, that need forgiveness, right? Isn't that true? We talked about that last week. Individuals commit sins that need forgiveness. It is also true that societies and governments and cultures and tribes and companies and human collectives, we create sinful structures and we get caught up into born into, we contribute implicitly and explicitly in the perpetuation of systems that will face judgment. If individuals who sin need redemption, and I do, then so do these systems that are tainted with sin. They also need redemption. Jesus wakes us to that important fact. In our second episode, we learn that Jesus doesn't just warn. He also wills and hopes and prays that we would choose life. When Jesus gets to the top, to the top of Skull Hill, he's crucified. He is affixed to the cross, likely with nails and ropes to keep him there. He's then propped up likely dropped into a hole, adds to the pain, stripped of his clothing to add to the shame, crucified next to two criminals, condemned to die. And I can scarcely imagine the pain. And I know that when I am in pain, 
especially when I'm sick, I'm a wuss. And when I get sick, I get grumpy. That's my life. I'm not at my best. Are you at your best when you're sick and irritable and tired? And here is Jesus, illegally arrested, questionably tried in a false court, falsely convicted, abused emotionally and physically. The weight of the world's sin is on his back. He's feeling abandoned by humans and feeling abandoned by the Father. And yet, at his worst moment, what comes out of his mouth? Father, forgive them, for they do not understand what they are doing. We know from Jesus' own teaching that what comes out of the mouth, he says, comes from the heart. And if Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like, and if he is at his weakest and worst, then we know what he's saying in this moment has zero filter. And that means that the very heart of God is the impulse to forgive. If you have ever wondered what God is really like, if you've ever been tempted to think that he's probably mostly this angry guy bent on perfection and mad at us most of the time, or if you have a tendency to think of God as generally ticked off and does some nice things when he becomes Jesus but usually is mad at us, then you need to hear this. At his very core, God the Father wants nothing more than for you and I and the world to receive forgiveness. Years later, Paul would write to the church in Rome and he would say it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. He does not anywhere write it is the repentance of people that gets God to be kind to us. That's an important thing to say. We say it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We say that in church all the time. But the converse is so true and so important. He never says it is your repentance or your works or your attitude that gets God to like you. Even though the nation is headed towards judgment, it doesn't have to be that way. Until there is time to repent, there's always time to repent. And by the way, I believe that the father heard and answered the son's prayer in that moment. People did respond to Jesus. You're proof of it. People did repent. They did come to know him as Savior and Lord. They did allow the power of God to change their hearts and their culture and their policies. They actually did care for the poor. And they did start hospitals and provide universal health care to anyone in need. They did protest violence with nonviolence. They did resist slavery by actually buying people from the slave market with their own money and then releasing them as free people. They redeemed prostitutes and rehabilitated them. They were a constant thorn in the side of whoever was in power. And they did this because Jesus died for them. His influence is all-encompassing. In the third episode, we read that Pilate put a placard, a title over Jesus' name. This wasn't unique to Jesus. It was common that, that uh, rulers would do this over people being crucified because it would kind of say what they were crucified for. Crucifixion, remember, is always a statement that Rome has power, you do not, 
don't trust me or you'll end up like that. So they put a placard above Jesus' name and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that all of the known world would be able to read it. And fun fact, you may have seen the symbol I-N-R-I um, on mainly Roman Catholic crosses or maybe on medallions and things. If you've ever wondered what that means, it stands for the Latin words. Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Eudeorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. There's your fun fact for the day. Of course, the great irony is that Pilate was likely trying to make a dig at the religious leaders who had rejected Jesus as a king at all. And at the same time, Pilate was trying to make a dig at Israel in general, basically saying, this is what Rome thinks of your king. And yet, in reality... Pilate's placard over Jesus' head didn't say enough. Jesus isn't merely the king of the Jews. He's the sovereign king of the world. Pilate wasn't listening to my sermon series, The Direction of Glory. I mean, I don't get it. To him, glory and crucifixion, mutually exclusive, right? But in God's economy, Jesus is perhaps most glorified when he gives himself completely in obedience to the Father and to save us. That's where his glory is revealed. The corrupt powers of the world will never understand this, but thankfully, the grace of Jesus does not require us to understand the upside-down nature of the, of the kingdom of God. He only requires that we experience it and learn to live in it. That's a very different thing than trying to understand and be able to articulate everything. I'm thankful for that. Again, if last week we focused on the cross of Jesus offering us forgiveness on a personal level, this episode, in this episode we see the promise of a new king over the mass corruption of the world's kingdoms and societies. Can I get an amen? Like, that's really good news. Because even the best of our societies break down and are not that great. In our fourth episode, we read that at the sixth hour, which is noon by Roman reckoning, darkness covered the land until the ninth hour. So from 12 noon, when the sun should be brightest, until 3 in the afternoon, the sky was dark and the sun did not shine. What was going on? Several popular theories have circulated over the years. One that the early church was keen on promoting was that Jesus, the, the sky was darkened for three hours like Jesus was in the tomb for three days. And I like how that fits together. I think there's more going on than that, though. Two things in particular. The first, I think the darkness of the sky was a response by creation itself. The Son of God is being put to death, and the Son that was created, the globe that's glowing in the sky, goes dark in mourning. In many cultures, the sun represented the supreme God of the universe. The sun was the source of light. But, cre but creation knows better. The Son of God is the source of light and life. The sun being darkened was a way of creation itself, participating in the mourning of the Creator. Matthew, in his gospel, records earthquakes happening at this time as well. The whole heavens and earth trembling in sorrow for the crucified creator. How many of you experienced the eclipse last summer? Yeah. How many of you actually went to like the ground zero, the Oregon thing? And, yeah, I know you. Some people that suffered through the traffic. I didn't go down to Oregon, but uh, my family and I watched it with some friends in the Columbia neighborhood. 
And even at 90, what, 7% darkness, there was an eerie feeling about it, wasn't there? Even, even though it didn't last very long. And, and two things in particular really stood out to me as being, being weird. One was the shadows. At that time of day, almost in the midday, you, you don't see shadows on the ground. The light was just so weird, monochrome, and the, the shadows are, you know, normally the sun sets in the west, so we get shadows in the evening coming this way, shadows in the morning coming this way, and the shadows were all wrong. It was just like these flat, weird, it was just bizarre. The other thing that struck me was the coldness. It was a nice summer day. It was warm. It was late morning. It was warm. And the, the, I mean, the temperature dropped like 15 degrees in, in those mere seconds that the sun was covered up. It was so strange. Something was amiss in creation almost. And I think it, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like for three hours of complete darkness in a world where there were no electric lights, Right? Uh, street street lamps, and you can't just go into your house and turn the light on. You might have a lamp or something, but how strange that must have been. So I think part of this was a response by creation, mourning for the loss of the Creator. But the second thing that would have brought fear to those knowing the Scriptures is that such darkness was a prophetic sign of judgment. Earlier we heard from the prophet Amos, chapter 8, and in this passage, speaking about God's judgment coming upon Israel, for her abuse to the poor and her abuse of power. Specifically, God says, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the mo- like mourning, not M-O-R-N, but M-O-U-R, like mourning for an only son. Isn't that strange? At the end, it will be like a bitter day. Amos is written hundreds of years before this event we're reading about in Luke's gospel. You know, the last time that God brought judgment in the form of a plague of darkness, it was against Egypt. This time, it's promised against Israel and really the whole world. And I think we have a decent understanding of personal sin. There are many in our culture. I know them. You know them. We read about them. But I'm talking about real people that I know who don't really believe in God. And don't really, like, pretty much have the mentality that, hey, you just believe your stuff, I'll believe mine, as long as we don't really cross paths too much, we're okay. But it's interesting when you walk with people over a period of years, because people have problems over a period of years. And I don't know one person, even my most staunch atheist friends and acquaintances, who don't get that they're broken on the inside, who don't get that they disappoint themselves with their actions, that their mind isn't as focused as they'd like to be, that they hurt the people they love. Christians call that sin. They may not call it sin, but I think we all have a pretty good concept that things are not right. I don't know anyone who is not delusional, who thinks I, you know, that they are perfect. I think we have a decent understanding of personal sin. What we sometimes fail to see is that sin corrupts all things. And sometimes it isn't always in the sinister ways that we think. It's just part of the system. Disease and corrupt mutations is all part of the broken cosmos. It's part of the creation that needs redeeming. Jesus, as creator, atones for the sin and the corruption in our larger systems. And he promises to make all things new. His atoning sacrifice on the cross is all-encompassing. 
It's not just about fallen nature, like the really obvious things. It's not just about global warming or disease. It's also about the societal ills that seem to have no fault. Many of you saw the prayer request a few days ago that Nicole Burdick's sister, Kristen, her, her, her good friend, was just coming back from a mission trip and died from a semi-truck hitting her. There may not have been any deliberate, diabolical, evil scheme to kill her. It could have been a driver asleep at the wheel. or It's just horrible. Some of you have heard this story, but I think it illustrates my point well. A few weeks ago, Corey and Sophia and Stella and I were up skiing at Whistler just for the day. It was a Friday. We went up early, and we were going to come back. We'd skied most of the day. We were riding up the chair about 2.30 in the afternoon. We were halfway up the crystal chair, to be specific, way over on the side of Blackland Mountain. And suddenly the chair stops, and we're just rocking in midair, halfway up the hill. 30 minutes go by, and then we see the ski patroller coming down the mountain, and he's stopping to talk to each chair of people and saying, hey, uh, so there's an electrical problem with the, with the chairlift. We're going to check back on you in a half an hour. If it doesn't start, we're thinking another half an hour. We've been up here 30 minutes already. Sun's sinking lower. Kids are shivering. Corey and I are starting to get concerned. We pull out all the old survival tricks, trying to engage the mind. We have the kids counting the amount of chairs and doing the math. Of half of the chairs have people on them, and they see four each, and the numbers are these. How many do they have in there? We're pulling the fingers into the gloves, telling them to move their fingers and their toes, because they're cold. We were on that chair two hours and 40 minutes, suspended in the air. Thankfully, we had just eaten. Parents, you'll know this. Thankfully, we had just peed. Thankfully, we had good gear. Thankfully, the wind wasn't blowing too hard. Thankfully, Samara was safely in the States with my mom and dad and not up there because her little body up for two hours in the air would have been a thing to be worried about. Thankfully, they didn't start rappelling us down. One, there were 200 people on this lift. When would they have gotten to us? It could have been so much worse, you know? I started to think of little Stella who's working so hard on her violin and I actually had these horrible thoughts of like, what if she loses some digits? Like, it's cold. Like, we're shivering up here. And what about the people who might be less for, you know, formidable than us? Like, some of the elderly people or younger people. Whose fault is this? Was it the maintenance crew? The lift operators? The ski patrol for not getting us down sooner? the management for not having a better policy, the engineers for creating a subpar backup system. Sin, with a big S, isn't always diabolical rulers or the direct influence of the devil himself. Sin is the state of the world that just doesn't work right because it's broken by our sin and it's infested everything and it's screwed up. The world is fallen, and as beautiful as it is, it's in desperate need of saving. Amos 8, in the darkness of the sun at the crucifixion, reminds us that the world is under judgment, which leads us to the fifth episode, the curtain of the temple separating the holy place and the populace, the place where God dwells and everyone else is torn into from the top to bottom. The fact is that this curtain was torn from top to bottom indicates that God is the one tearing it down. 
The death of Jesus took on the sin of the world and the sins of individuals. Now the curtain, which represented the separation from God due to our sin, is down. Atonement, literally, at one meant, means taking our estranged relationship with God and making it whole. And it works in two directions. Don't forget this part. First is the familiar direction. It means that we all have access to God the Father. The curtain's down, not separating us from God anymore. We can come to Him directly. We can pray to Him directly, things that we've been doing tonight already. The temple is obsolete. Jesus is the way to the Father. He says to all, repent, come and follow me. Through faith in Jesus, all people have direct access to God the Father, and Jesus' Father becomes the our Father, through faith. That is one of the directions, the familiar direction. The second direction is more than the personal connection individuals can have with God. The curtain being torn down means we can come close to God, but it also means that God is set loose into the world. Aslan is on the move. He's redeeming the world. He's making all things new. And what hope we have through this all encompassing reach of Jesus. It's only a matter of time. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Sounds like only the beginning of what to say, but it sounds so appropriate as well. Thank you. Thank you for giving yourself on the cross for us. Had you done it even as a sentimental gesture, it would be praiseworthy. It would be history-making. It would be worth ballads to be written about you and stories to be told. But how awesome that your death actually accomplishes salvation. Actually makes a way for us to be right as individuals with God. And gives us the promise of new creation, of new life. Oh Lord, I know we're not supposed to talk about resurrection and Lent, but I'm so thankful. So thankful that you died and rose. And you're making all things new. And I pray for my sisters and brothers this evening who are carrying personal weight for this guilt or shame. I pray for breakthrough, Lord, for, for redemption, for renewal, for salvation. And I pray for my sisters and brothers and I who are hurting because of the, the way the world hurts, Lord because of the broken social structures that we live under, because of disease that affects us and the ones we love, because of random, seemingly random death, Lord. And I pray you would infuse us with the hope that you will redeem all these things, that, that judgment will come upon the wicked and you will make all things new and beautiful. Mark us out, Lord, as people of hope.